look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, the post-draft edition, the post-virtual draft edition. I'll be joined later in the podcast by San Francisco General Manager John Lynch and Cincinnati Bengals head coach Zach Taylor. Both of them very, very much in the news after, in my opinion, the most interesting draft that I have ever seen. So everything's weird now. You all know that everything I'm sure in your lives have changed or has changed and this too was such an unpredictable draft to cover and to be around what i wanted to talk about at the at the top of this was really one of the most interesting experiences i've had in a little while Uh, every year i try to find a team to embed with during the draft And what that means is sitting there in the corner of the draft room, watching what's going on, trying to hear things, furiously scribbling down notes when trades are being made or uh, when guys are being picked. And what was so interesting this year is I viewed it, okay, you have to get somebody this year. You've got to find a team because it's so unusual. You'd be drafting out of your house. So I made a few calls and, And I had done this nine, I think nine times in my life I've been in draft rooms. Cowboys, uh, was in the Niners in 2017, was in the Seahawks once with Mike Holmgren. Uh, Anyway, so this was a, a fascinating, fascinating ask because I'm asking general managers and PR guys and coaches about this and they're all hesitant for a very simple reason. They don't know what's going to happen. They, the last thing they want to do is to be put in a position where they look stupid. And they were just worried that they were going to look stupid, a lot of them. So finally, I ended up convincing Tampa Bay general manager Jason Light and his great PR guy, Nelson Luis, who did a great job uh, for me in, in helping me sort of uh, it, it get my case sold <laughs> to, to Jason Light. But I, I think the, the thing I wanted to get across, and it was, and I was serious about it. I, I just said, you know, drafts go by like a flash, you know, and then either you're really happy or you're really down and whatever, you have a couple of beers and you get up, you do it the next day. But wouldn't you like this strangest draft you'll ever be involved in? Wouldn't you like to be have a record of that, a historical record done by somebody who is not from Bucks.com or whatever, who is an impartial observer? I don't care whether your trade goes through or whether your trade doesn't or whatever. You know, I just I want to see what happens, you know. And uh, so we talked about it and he agreed to do it. And the way it worked was so I was virtually with the Bucks in round one on Thursday night. There IT guy, Spencer Dill, took a, uh, uh, a Surface, took a, you know, like basically kind of an iPad, but, a, you know, Microsoft Surface, and he put it over on the side of the room where I could get a view of everything and I could hear everything. The microphone in those things are very good. So I could hear everything. And I just watched. And what was so interesting about this is that Jason Light, the GM of the Bucks, involved his family. And like he had him come in beforehand and look at everything. Hey, here's what's going on. And, and here's, the, here's the draft. It's going to be on TV and, and all this stuff. And you could tell he really wanted his family involved. And it was cool. He had a little nameplate on his desk, Ron Light. 
his dad died last fall. Uh, the, the, the family was very close and his dad died. He was actually at a Nebraska football game in September and died. And so Jason wanted his dad's nameplate from work. He worked for an irrigation company. He wanted his nameplate from work right on his desk so he could be looking at it during the draft. So it was cool family stuff. But the coolest family story that there was was about midway through the draft uh, when, they're, when they're trying to get something done. As a matter of fact, it looked like at the time that he was on the phone, or it sounded like he was on the phone with Mike Mayock, who had the 12th pick in the draft with the Raiders, and he's trying to get a deal done. And there's this sound coming from a distant place, like just outside the room, and it's, Mommy! And you could hear it clear as day. And, and, and I, I just said, you know, here's a guy who's trying to do his job at home and he's experiencing what everybody else in America who's got to work at home and has got three kids running around is experiencing that. Luckily for him, he had a, the door closed and he could wall off the world if he wants. But I thought that was, of all the things I heard that night, it was just, just bizarre. Uh, but what was so cool watching it is that I got this sense that because he had done all this virtual stuff, done scouting meetings, done meetings with his coaches, was back and forth every day with Bruce Arians on video conferences. He'd gotten used to it. And, you know, as he told me after, after the draft, you know, it, it was not, was definitely not bad. Uh, and he, and as he said to me, and, and I'm going to read a quote from my story. Here's what's crazy. I'm almost at the point where I like working this way. I'm getting so much done. Going back to the office, well, that's going to be different. It's amazing how much we've been able to, to get accomplished working this way. And I think he's got a lot of company around the NFL. I think a lot of guys, and you'll hear from John Lynch about this uh, in the podcast, a lot of guys, I think, have enjoyed the benefit of being able to see their families in April. They never see their families in April. They're always doing draft stuff, meetings and visits with players and taking them to dinner and all this stuff. So I think there's a lot uh, that was good about this. I think there was a lot for the NFL that was very good about this. They kind of got off their, their glitzy high horse and they got their hands dirty a little bit, just like the rest of the United States, just like the rest of the world. And uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that people are going to take from this last six weeks into how they do business in the future. And again, you'll hear John Lynch talk about that, but I found the whole thing really interesting. And, and overall, you know, if you, if you read my, my story in my Football Morning in America column this week about embedding with the Bucks, you'll see that a, it can still be frenetic even when you're not in the same room. And B, you absolutely unequivocally can get the job done virtually the same way you get it done sitting together in that room. So let's, uh, let's go to John Lynch, the general manager of the 49ers. Had a very, very busy weekend. And we also discussed a little bit about his life right now and what he might miss about television. Here's John Lynch. Happy to be joined on the podcast by John Lynch, the general manager of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I thought the Niners had a really good weekend. Uh, they answered two huge needs, a defensive tackle with Javon Kinlaw and Brandon Ayuk, the wide receiver, uh, in the first round. And then on day three, traded for the left tackle of the present and maybe the future in Trent Williams with Washington. So, John, congratulations. I thought it went really well. Thank you, Peter. I, I did too. I'm really proud of our, our entire organization. Uh, you know, you've been in our first year. Uh, you were in the draft room with us. Yeah. And I think we have a, a very um, collaborative, whatever you call it, synergistic between personnel and coaching. And I think the coolest thing to me, even more so than in a traditional draft room uh, with the Zoom, uh, or, or the virtual, I should call it the virtual, uh, we use Microsoft Teams, we use Zoom, but uh, with the virtual concept, 
it felt like everybody could be included even more so. We had our huddle over here, what we tried to create, and it took some trial and error to get there. Um, we had our huddle, which had all of our coaches, our doctors. Then we had our draft room, the people that traditionally would be in the draft room. And then, as you know, kind of when Kyle and I and everyone, you feel like everyone's breathing down your neck, I could escape to my office during a typical draft. Yeah. So we had a third setup that was where Kyle and I could hang out in, in uh, and kind of get away from everyone and just talk, okay, what do we want to do here? We've heard from everyone. And, but it, it really felt like everyone was part of the process as a result, even more so than a typical draft. And I was really proud of the entire group. I found what was really interesting, and I, I don't know if you saw this, but I ended up doing the uh, the Bucks this year, kind of the virtual draft room with uh, with Jason Light, and and you know saw him kind of agonizing over trying to make a trade. It was a lot like in 2017 when when Parag Marate was calling everybody, you know, in that first round, and you just go down the list and you keep hearing, "Nah, we're gonna, we're going to stay," or "Nah, we don't want to do this." I mean, at one point. Jason Light just says, nobody wants to trade. <laughs> you know, it was really kind of driving him nuts. He made an incredible offer to Jacksonville at nine. But, you know, hey, that's, that's the way it was. And, but what was really interesting about your trade with him is that, you know, I, and I don't know how much you knew or whatever, but somehow, some way, somebody with the Bucks found out that Joe Staley might be retiring or that there was a lot of noise about it or something. But Jason Light was nervous, you know, because obviously a lot of people had Tristan Wirfs going higher than he did. And he knew you guys might have to take a tackle. Tristan Wirfs was the last one. And that's ended up, I think, why he ended up trading with you. But how did you see that whole process going? Yeah. And, and look, I, I, you know, I, I played in Tampa for a long time and, you know, I've heard there's some sentiment that maybe I pulled one over on, on the Bucks. That's not at all what happened. I mean, Joe, we've known since the end of the season, he fought through some things and was having some stinger issues late in the year. He didn't even tell us about it because as Joe said later, why would I ever say anything? I'm not going to miss an opportunity to, to play in the playoffs, to play in the Super Bowl. I'm going to fight through it. So Joe did that after the season, uh, kind of talked to our medical staff. We, we set them up with some very uh, different opinions for people to go see. And then at that point, we said, well, he, he, he has a decision. No one told him he couldn't play, but they said, hey, you may experience some challenges moving forward. And we knew that Joe had a decision to make. And I think we were fairly public with that. But it wasn't until the week of the draft where, and, and, and by our urging, because my, my uh, frame of mind, as was Joe, especially this year where we didn't have a traditional offseason, time's your friend. And the further you get away from a season, maybe your body starts feeling better. And we wanted Joe back in the worst way. He wanted to be back in the worst way. So we just encouraged him, take as much time. There will be some point where we do need to, because Joe said, I don't want to put you guys in a tough position. And I said, don't worry about us, just as long as by a draft. Well, you know, I spoke to the media the week before the draft and kind of the pre-draft and I said, I was encouraged. We were, you know, we, we had been keeping in touch with Joe and it was still a decision. I felt that was good news. I think after probably hearing me, Joe, Joe picked up the phone or excuse me, Kyle picked up the phone and, and um, you know, we got to We got to hear from Joe himself. And at that point, Joe broke the news. Hey, I've been thinking about this long, long and hard. And, and I've come to the conclusion I'm going to be done. And, and so just a couple days to... before the draft. Yeah. A couple days before, but then there's a whole other element that, you know, what do you do now? Do you, do you go draft in a, in a class where there's four tremendous tackles and even beyond that, a lot of depth of the tackle class or very fortuitous for us, this Trent Williams situation. We had called on that last year. Joe was hurt. McGlinchey was hurt at one point, like we needed some help and it just, it wasn't going to happen last year. So uh, the Trent Williams thing was out there. I made a call to Ron Rivera and saw that it very much was in play. And so Kyle and I at that point start weighing, okay, we, we could run into a chance where Worfs or any of these top four tackles that we had rated very high aren't going to be there. So we better, and, and Kyle was very comfortable with Trent. We also felt like we could uh, address other needs of our team, you know, if we had that left tackle in place. It was an unforeseen 
um, situation. So we entered the Trent Williams. The hard part, though, was that other people were interested in the Trent Williams situation. And so, you know, I had told Ron Rivera from day one that we got to know by the time this draft starts. Well, we get there and Ron's not ready to give me with certainty because other teams were in play. And I don't I don't blame him. I was frustrated. But it wasn't until day three. So when Jason called there, you know, who were the guys at 13? We would have stood pat and take. Well, Kinlaw was the top of that list. Um, you know, there was C.D. Lamb and Ayuk that we had very evenly matched at the receiver position. And then third on that list was Worf. So we never expected to get back there. But what we thought, if we can get back a little bit, we felt like our final point was Atlanta at 16 because we thought there might be a chance that they'd take Kinlaw. We don't want to – we can't – uh, we can't choose to go farther than 15, really, because we think Atlanta might be the team uh, who would take Ken Law, who we really wanted. And so when, when Jason called, it was actually Adam Peters and, and Spy, uh, John Spitek, his counterpart right. there, um, who, were, who were doing that deal. And then Adam said, JL, Tampa's waiting. What do you want to do? Kyle and I are talking on the Zoom finally. I said, do the deal. We've got enough players, and, and I think I know who they're taking. Uh, with Werfs. And so it worked out for everyone. And, um, you know, there, there were a lot of variables. So um, that's kind of the, how that story came to play. If in, in the, if they had taken Kinlaw for some weird reason, what do you think you would have done? Well, that was tough. And I, I think at that point, if possible, maybe a trade out again, because right. we had two, two very evenly matched players in, in CD and IU both. We, we liked a lot, you yeah. know, um, or, you know, worse at that point comes into play because we don't know about Trent Williams. So there's so many, um, yeah. I think that's the one thing people can't see in these deals. It's, they're not absolutes. Uh, this thing is a very fluid process and right. Tristan Worf's a guy high on our list. Absolutely. Um, but we, we felt, again, Kyle having coached Trent Williams, we knew what we were getting. Um, we just didn't know if we were getting him. And so there was a little risk that we assumed, but we were willing to take that. And when Kinlaw was there, it really made it an easy decision for us. Is Kinlaw the kind of player who you think can be a six or, son, six or 700 snap a year player and maybe not be exactly what Buckner was, but to be that kind of durable rock in the middle of your line yeah I think even with DeForest uh Peter one of the things that that we had as a stated goal this offseason was to get a little bit bigger you know DeForest um is a big tall man he's but he was 285 290 pounds and we felt at times you know playing Seattle with those huge guards you know guys get worn down and we needed a little more beef so the one thing you get with Javon he's 325 pounds and and, and a lean 325 pounds if you can believe it he's got this giant wingspan I think he's a perfect fit for what we do uh, with Chris Kacarek and you know we like teeing off and and uh, just exploding off the line of scrimmage and uh, wrecking things and, and Kinloff was just a perfect match for that so as for how many snaps he can play I think we can we can be judicious in terms of just finding the right amount because we've got guys like Solomon Thomas, um, you know, and I think, to, I, you know, when I played Warren snap would play 90% of the snaps. No one does that anymore. <laughs> Very few yeah. people, Khalil Mack and a few guys do, but uh, we really believe in a rotation, go as hard as you can, and then we'll pull the next guy in. So I think that's going to work well with Ken line and he's got a lot of work to do, but we, you know, a lot of faith in our D line coach too, in Chris Kacarek, who I think is one of the better ones going in football. And, uh, you know, so much goes into it. And, and that was a big part of it, too. We felt like Kacarek and Salah had a vision for him, could develop him in the right way to really be a difference maker in our scheme. Tell me a little bit about uh, when you get down, you had the 31st pick and you ended up trading up. And, you know, what I had heard, and you tell me whether this is true, that Ayuk actually was your first or first or second guy among this great receiver group. Is that so? And if so, were you getting a little nervous waiting for him? Yeah, he and CD, at the end of the day, we had almost evenly matched CD Lamb. And uh, it was hard not to take CD because he had had so much more production in college and in high school. He's one of the most prolific high school players in Texas history. Um, so, but Ayuk is a guy that just the more we watched, the more fond we grew of him. Um, and so, you know, it was 
you, you do this whole process of draft meetings and then as it gets closer, you kind of pull the circle in and, and the last couple of days, it's just Kyle and I going through different scenarios, mocks, we listen to everyone and everyone gets to be, you know, us, the decision makers, and we listen to what they do, but we don't give our opinion. And then we go back and talk more. And the thing, you know, I think it was two days before I said to Kyle, you know what, I know people might raise some eyebrows, but I really don't care. At 13, if we get stuck and we can't trade out, I'd be perfectly happy taking IU. And he said, I'm so glad you said that because I feel the same way. And so uh, I think we knew at that point that he had really become a guy that we had become intrigued with. I think the combination of strength and speed and separation ability. And then, you know, the, the advantage, I think in a year like this, you always do, but you have to trust relationships more than ever before. And Herm Edwards, I'm, uh, he's the godparent to my youngest daughter. I'm his son's, uh, his son's uh, godparent. He coached me for a long time, but one of my closest friends in the world and, and uh, their families, and we're incredibly close. And so, you know, I waited till the end with, with Brandon Ayuk, but I called Herm and I said, Herm, give me the skinny on this kid. And you know, one of the things he talked a lot is just how competitive and how important it was for Brandon to be great. And that spoke to me and spoke to us. And so he, he was a guy that continued to ascend. And I would say the inflection point for him during the draft, we thought if he could, if he could get by some of these teams. And then once he, once he didn't go, the Eagles uh, selected Rager, Kyle and I on the Zoom said, we, got, we never intended to move up in this draft. If anything, we were moving back to through some more picks. Um, but right now we, we got to start looking into getting moving up. And, and fortunately I called Rick Spielman and he was interested in doing it. They had taken Jefferson at 22. Yeah. And right after that, uh, Rick and I got on the phone and, uh, he said, yeah, I think we could do something there. And so we pulled that off, got up to where we could take Iuke. And so two guys, potentially we take at 13, we ended up with them both. And that, that made us very excited. Um, it sounded like, I mean, what worked out well for you is that you get the four from Tampa and you're, you're essentially, you got the two guys you wanted and it really didn't cost you anything, you know, to move, you move, you move down one spot early in the round and then you move up a few spots later in the round and it all kind of, you know, washed out uh, evenly. So that had to feel pretty good for you that even though you moved up, you're using capital that you got two hours earlier. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's, that's why we were, we were um, willing to do it and excited to do it. And, uh, you know, you've been in our draft room. I, the one thing this year, again, you know, uh, trusting your team. You know, you were in there year one and Farag did all the, train, uh, the, the trade calls. I think we've all been trained by Farag a little bit. And it's, you know, a little, little uh, trade computer we have you know you can just move around picks it's actually kind of fun and we kind of split up the league Mark Mayhew had eight teams Adam Peters had 18 Frog had eight and uh, and I had eight and and so that worked really well and and we had done a lot of work prior to the draft letting uh, teams know that we were willing to get out but at that time we turned the tides and said all right everybody mobilize and let's try to move up uh, to these to these teams and and uh, like, like you said, we were able to do so with the pick that we gained from Tampa. Um, one thing I noticed about being with uh, Jason Light virtually is that he wasn't bothered and, and he, he didn't seem to be restricted at all by this new setup. You know, when they were talking to teams, it wasn't like, how do you do this or how do you do that? They Most of it is by cell phone anyway. But they're talking just on this thing that you have, you know, like the, the Zoom with all the guys on it. He'll ask Arians a question. He'll ask his pro guy a question, his college guy a question. He'll be on the phone. And really, it, was, it really wasn't that much different from sitting in a room with him. I'm sure it was a little bit different, but that was the one thing I said to him at the end. I said, that, that seemed, you seem so comfortable working all these weird technologies. Yeah, I think it would have been a lot harder, Peter, had uh, had, you, had everyone not done their draft preparation virtually. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were all forced to do that. So you had a month working with that technology. The other thing is, that's why I didn't panic when, you know, people talked about uh, the NFL mock draft when we kind of went through a, a mock deal. Yeah. And 
from the first pick, there were some issues and everybody was going, oh my gosh, this is just, this is going to be a disaster. Well, we had done the same thing internally. And the first time we went through it, it was so bad. It, I mean, it was just terrible. And, and uh, you know, Kyle got off after five minutes and said, this is a total mess. I said, hang in there. We're going to fix it. We came back at the second iteration. We were so much better. And by the third, we had it down. And so when that thing happened league-wide, I said, oh, we're going to be fine. They're gonna, you have to sometimes go through the mess to figure out, okay, wow, I didn't anticipate that being an issue. So you have, that's why you, that's why you go through rehearsals and stuff. But by the time we were all there, it was very seamless. And I, you know, I have an inkling that a lot of people actually liked it. And so in some form or fashion, I think it'd be fun to incorporate. I think having the families there, I know that the public in general enjoyed that, but for people like myself to be able to experience, it's always, I think part of every kid, I know when my dad, growing up I'd go to work with them sometime but someone said what does he do I'd say I don't know They're like you know well they got to see us really what we do and my wife Linda you know what she didn't want to be on camera but she was hanging out in the draft room saying this is really fascinating I had no idea this happened and so to be able to share that with your family and I know talking to GMs around the league and head coaches they felt the same way it was interesting I, I spoke to Joe Douglas because I thought he had a he had a real poignant scene. So here's Joe Douglas, this 20-year scout. Finally, he gets a GM job. He's going to run his first draft. And he's got to do it in a little room off the main room in his house, on the first floor of his house. And he's got his, his wife and three kids, like, staring in at him at the door like he's an animal in a zoo or something. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so – and it happens – and, he, and then they burst in and his daughter said, oh, dad, I'm so proud of you. You got your guy. And he got a little misty. Nice. And so I asked him about it, you know, afterwards. And he just said, you know, he said, when you hear that you're going to be drafting out of your house, it's a little bit uneasy. But he said, quite honestly, he said, I, I loved it. It's a lifetime memory now. You know, my family got to experience my first draft as a general manager. And I, I really am happy about it. Yeah, it's, it's really neat. I, I think the same experience. I've got a couple of college kids. They were home. I put Jake to work. He's my son. He's, he's over at Stanford. And, you know, uh, you only had so many hands, so I put him to work. His job was to get the, the, you know, the player we drafted on Zoom and get Jed, York, our owner, and Kyle. So he helped facilitate that. That was fun to have him part of the process. The girls were in there. It was just it – was, it was really fun. Yeah, that's cool. Um. I want to ask you a little bit about Trent Williams and when did that get rekindled on day two or on day three? Well, I wouldn't say it was, uh, excuse me. It wasn't ever off. It just like, I felt like, you know, you, you get, you get to places in these negotiations and Ron Rivera, who I've had a long, um, long relationship with, uh, I met him through Herm Edwards. They're both from Monterey, California, both their dad's military guys out there at Fort Ord and, Herm used to do this tremendous football camp and Ron and I were counselors every year. And, and so I got to know him there and then through broadcasting, I did a lot of Panthers games. So got to know Ron. And um, I don't think it's any secret that the Shanahan's and, the, and Dan Snyder didn't leave on the best of terms. And, you know, year one, uh, perhaps when we were trying to get Kirk, uh, Kirk Cousins or, or had some interest in doing that, Maybe that showed itself a little. So you're never feeling great about that. He's never going to send them our way. But I, you know, I, I told our team, listen, I have a good relationship with Ron. I think enough times passed. Um, let's give it a shot. And so, you know, uh, I, I think what happened to Ron, though, is every time we get close to having a deal, someone else would come in and say, hang in there. Uh, something may happen today. You know, we might get some draft picks where we could give you this, which was a little better than our offer and as you knew going in we didn't have a ton of draft capital to give them so we had to get creative think about next year so we just kept throwing ideas and uh, you know I think Ron was a little embarrassed that he kept kind of putting it off because I said Ron how do you expect us to do business if we don't know we have a left tackle or not and the same could be said for you and he said I know just hang in there and finally I could tell when I called before day three I called him first thing in the morning it was like calling a girlfriend for the first time I waited till 8 30 on the nose and, and dealt it you know hit, hit send and and I could just hear from his voice I think this is good and Ron said okay you want to do this thing I said absolutely and 
you know, that was huge for us because now the whole thing kind of came together and uh, we were very excited. And I thanked Ron for hanging in there and he thanked me for my patience. So it was, it was a good thing. I want to ask you two perspective questions. So now you, you've been in this job a little over three years. Like you've, this, this was your fourth draft. You've been in four years and say three months. And I'm just curious now, when you look at the decision you made to take this job and to go out of a comfy life doing TV, living in the place you wanted to live probably the rest of your life in San Diego, and you take an NFL GM job, how do you look back on the decision and how you think it's worked out for you? Oh, it's been great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm joking, Jed York, when I say this, but now I think I have it all figured out. I just do this job virtually from San Diego and we're all good. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm saying that because I'm down here at our house and our kids are happy and all that, but it doesn't work like that. You have to grind. This is an all-in job. And fortunately, and I, I've told you this before, I wouldn't have done this without the blessing and in fact, urging of my family. They could tell it was something that had me excited. And uh, it's been really fun. And uh, we've gotten better. Uh, we were real close to pulling the whole thing off. We didn't get it done. And so that just drives me more. I think, um, you know, I wish you could come back at some point because I think we were pretty good with our process year one, but I think it's grown a lot from there. Um, you know, you want to get better each and every year. Um, you know, it's something Kyle and I, we heard from John Gruden a lot. You never stay the same. You get better, or you get worse. So we're in to get better. And I think we have. And we've got a really good roster. We had some challenges for the first time since we've been there. Uh, one of the attractive things, aside from being the Niners and all the great history, we had a ton of resources to work with. Um, well, we've we've uh, we've uh, you know delved into and, and used up a lot of those resources. So this was the first year where we had some economic realities that a lot of the teams do in terms of the cap and all that. And so you have to do something like let a guy like DeForest Buckner go via a trade. And it's the last thing you want to do because you tell your guys, you know what, you be like DeForest and, and you'll get taken care of. Well, DeForest did everything right on, on and off the field. And we just came to a realization we, we couldn't get that done and then do all the other things we wanted to do to keep our team together. In the end, I feel good. A good friend, Chris Ballard over there in Indy, um, gave us a great pick and DeForest got paid like he deserved. And we were able to, to keep our team as much as, as we could possibly together. And, and I think even give ourselves an opportunity to be a little bit better. And so you never, you know, after the draft, people say, hey, you happy with the draft? And I say, yes. But one thing I have learned is that ask me in a couple of years and then I'll have a lot better uh, answer. But I am proud of what we've accomplished. I, I, I do think we've set ourselves up to have an opportunity to be a better team this year. Do you think there are many things that have happened professionally to you and your organization in the last six weeks since you walked out of your office into this great unknown? A, what have you learned? B, are there things from it that you actually might incorporate into the way you do your job in the future? Well, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think, especially for the, the coaches, um, you know, they finish a long season. If you play into the playoffs, into the Super Bowl, which is everyone's goal, you're really at a disadvantage because the, the league year is starting. Mobile is happening and all those things. But I think something we're going to commit to doing, um, and I talked to Ron Rivera, he talked about the same thing. Our coaches got so much done being at home. We're typically, and I think what it did too, it, it eliminated a lot of the group think. If you have three O-line coaches, you know, um, oftentimes they're stacked. The rankings are very close, maybe one or two different, just to just so it looks like they didn't do it together. Well, their offices are right next to each other. Well, during this process, you got you might have had some hurt feelings because the first O line coach had a guy first, and then the other guy had him seventh on their list, and they're looking at each other like, "Oh man!" But it gave everyone's true opinion. So I think there's a lot of of good in that, and then they can be so productive at home too. I mean, there's when. Um, in a traditional year when your kids are at school you can get a lot done and I think it makes for um, you know happier home life as well and one of the stresses on this job is how time intensive it is so if we can alleviate some of that still get our job done and it, maybe even have an inkling you could even do it better then why not incorporate that into to what you do so Kyle and I have already talked about that 
And I think here in the next week, while it's fresh on the mind, on our mind, we're going to incorporate a lot of those things that we're going to change moving forward. And I would anticipate some part of the league doing that along, um, you know, on their, uh, as, uh, in the same vein that we're, we're anticipating doing that. Uh, and how about, how about just sort of the scouting process? I already had one GM said, I can tell you this, one of our long meetings, like the week long meeting, either before the season or before the, or before the, uh, or at the end of the season or before the combine, we're going to do that probably virtually, you know, instead yeah. of bringing them in because the, his point was, you ask your scouts, they're already on the road for, you know, three or four months. And then you say, hey, come here for a week. And, hey, it's great for our camaraderie. You know, everybody has a good time doing it. We all like each other. But the reality is, for a family, that's just another week where dad's away and the husband's away. So they, they're already going to change one of those. What about the scouting process? Yeah, I think there, there's a large part of that as well. And, and in, a, in a weird way, because I've always been one for personal uh, interactions, um, but I feel like our scouting staff and our coaching staff were more intertwined than ever. You know, the back end of free agency, after we would get done with our virtual meeting, we'd say, hey, you guys stay on and you get that back end. You're, you're, you're undrafted free agent list. We want that tight. We want it organized. And we want it to be collective. And so those, so absolutely that will be a part of us moving forward. Um, you know, I think some of it where, you know, where were the challenges like medical rechecks, not being able to have that. But I, I do think in a year when we go back and have that, um, you know, with, with Javon Kinlaw, he's got a really interesting story. So what was the advantage we had with him? Because we couldn't bring him in on a 30 visit and spend two, two days with him. Well, Will, Will Muschamp, the head coach at South Carolina, is a guy we became very fond of and close with last year when we were scouting Debo Samuel. And how so? Well, he told us to a T who Debo Samuel was, both his positive traits and not negative traits, but just some of the realities. Here's, here's where Debo can get in trouble, you know, um, and he's a bigger guy. So if he goes away for a weekend, he may put on five pounds, you know, so – he just, he nailed Debo to a T. And so we had a trusted voice when it came to Javon Kinlaw. So I think it's a, it's a, um, it's a good lesson for why you cultivate and why you develop those relationships um, because they come in handy when you need them most. Um, but yeah, I think the whole league's going to, you know, I think there will be some, some moderate changes and uh, moving forward and, and just an idea that you can do things extremely well in this form and fashion. One of the most interesting things, Kyle, and I talked about when you're doing these virtual meetings, you're, you're addressing only, you know, one person can talk at once, but it's rare if we're in the, in the draft room and we're watching film, everyone's face is on the screen. We can see everyone's reaction. So when you say something and some scouts rolling his eyes, like, you don't know what he's talking about. You can see all that, <laughs> both good and bad, which is great because you want everyone's honest assessment. And, and there is an element to when you can see everyone's reaction when you're showing something. We found that really interesting as well. Three last quick things. You can answer them with a sentence. You can answer answer him with a paragraph but last year I went to your training camp my favorite player on your team was Jalen Hurd and I walked out of that camp and we got in the car to go to the next place and these uh the two women I was traveling with said well what was your impression and I said we just saw the 2019 NFL offensive rookie of the year this guy's going to come out of nowhere he's going to be fantastic and so I guess I, I was wrong, but but uh, I wonder what's up with Jalen Hurd, your third round pick from Baylor last year, got the fractured bone in his back and turned out to be a total wash year. What's going on now? Well, he had a good redshirt year, and uh, now he's got to go do it. Our, our belief hasn't changed. We've seen him for 14 days on the field, and I agree with you. You could make a case he was the best player on the field, um, you know, for those 14 days. And um, so, you know, one of the things in this league, uh, your best ability is availability. He's got to be available. Uh, that wasn't his fault. He had a stress reaction in his back that flared up. It was frustrating because every time he'd get close, he'd go try to ramp up and it would hurt him. And that's the way those things are. I've learned more about that injury than I ever want to know. Um, so uh, 
you know, Jalen's doing very well. He's a big part of our plans. And remember in the past, we thought he could play some receiver. We thought we could play some backup tight end, some kind of a move tight end. We felt like even at times we could play him at running back. That vision for him hasn't changed. He, now he's just got to go do it and be available. And then um, we think, you know, we almost look at him as another draft choice this year. Um, you obviously played at a very, very high level, uh, Super Bowl champion, consistent Pro Bowl player. You played the game for a long time. And now we're headed into total uncertainty. No one has any idea when teams will get together. I said to Andy, uh, to uh, Joe Burrow the other day, how are you going to react if you don't even meet A.J. Green until Labor Day? I mean, you know, there, there's all these weird who knows what's going to happen. But the one thing I wanted to ask you is, as a, as a former player, what would it be like for players to play a football game with no fans in the stands? Be strange. <laughs> be strange for me. I, I, I was a guy, um, you, you've known me for years, I'm pretty mild-mannered off the field, but there was, a, there was another person that we kind of read about game time with, and I fed off that emotion of, of fans. And, you know, in, in Tampa, it was fun that, you know, people came to watch the defense, not the offense. And we fed off that energy and emotion. And when you go into an opposing stadium and they're booing you, you almost fed off that as well. So it's a big part of our game. This is an emotional game. It's a physical game. And um, those things are a big part of it. But um, I, I really don't have – it'd be very strange, you know. I remember – I guess the closest thing I can – um, I remember in 1989, my freshman year at Stanford, we had had, um, you know, the big earthquake that happened during the, the World Series. And um, we, uh, we took a week off, or no, that weekend we played University of Utah at home at Stanford. There was a big thing, do you play or do you not play? We were out of school, but they decided to play. And we played probably in front of 3,000 fans in the old Stanford Stadium that fit 80,000 plus people. And Scott Mitchell was Utah's quarterback. And it was the strangest thing I'd ever, in mean, this huge stadium, and it was dead quiet. And uh, we ended up losing to Utah, which was an upset. And uh, I just, we didn't have any juice. And so it's going to be interesting to say the, say the least. And we've talked to our players. Now the virtual workouts have, have started with our, with our veterans. It's like, who's going to be ready here? We've brought in a lot of quality people so that when faced with challenges, um, we find a way. And that's what we have to do is find a way to get better without – having a traditional off season and to physically be ready such that when people, the experts deem it to be safe for us to all gather and play that we have to be ready. We can't use that as an excuse. Do you ever miss television? Uh, I miss a lot of the people, you know, one of the fun things this year at Super Bowl Fox was doing the game and they kind of surprised me. Eric Shanks, the, uh, the president said, Hey, come on down, have dinner with me. And I walked into like a, surprise party of 150 Fox staffers. Now they weren't all there for me. They were having that, but Eric had just told me he and I were having, and you know, they gave a nice standing ovation, but you know, when you work with people like that week in, week out, they become almost like another family to you. And so I miss the people um, that I, that I met over the years at Fox, but um, I always did have something missing of being truly invested in, and, and I guess they're being a scoreboard, they're being wins and losses that, that kind of go with it. And so I'm having fun and great thing about broadcasting. You can always go back and do it later on. <laughs> if This ever gets old. Bruce Arian said when he got the Tampa job again, he said, he said, honestly, it was really depressing, not caring who won and lost the game. My whole life I've lived and died with winning the game. And that really made it fun. And not having any skin in the game was just so weird. That has to be the same for you and, and, and all the guys who, you know, played for so long that when you stop playing, that part of you still doesn't go away. There's no doubt. And I'll tell you the hardest part of this job is actual game day because there's not a dang thing I can do. I've, even in broadcasting, you always performed on game day. I played – on, you know, you prepare and then you go play. As a broadcaster, you prepared all week. And then, yes, you didn't have skin in the game. You, there wasn't a win or a loss, but you got to go perform. Now <laughs> you, you work and you show up and, you know, I give guys hugs. I try to let them know I'm there for them, but I can't do a darn thing. So that's the hardest part of this job. 
Hey, John Lynch, this was fun. Really appreciate you taking some time and congratulations on your draft and good luck getting back to the big one in a very, very weird year. Yeah, thanks a lot, Peter. I appreciate it. So elsewhere at NBCSports.com, Mike Florio has been on fire this week. He's got some really good interviews now. Lots of general manager and coach interviews on PFTPM, his podcast. It's got Howie Roseman this week, the Eagles general manager. You will hear a really good explanation about Jalen Hurts and why he was the pick at 53 in the second round for Philly. Um, you will hear from Brandon Bean of the Buffalo Bills. They had a very interesting draft. The Ethan Fromm pick was, uh, was really interesting, obviously. Adam Gase of the Jets, they had a very active weekend. And nobody was more active than Rick Spielman, the GM of the Minnesota Vikings. 15 picks in the 2020 NFL draft. So Mike Florio gets you caught up on all of those people in the National Football League. And now my conversation with Cincinnati Bengals coach, Zach Taylor. Back on the Peter King podcast, so happy to be joined by Zach Taylor, the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. And Zach, we'll, we'll get into your draft overall, but um, obviously there's so much focus on Joe Burrow. And I want to start by, by asking you, what was your first exposure to Joe Burrow. When did you first hear of him, know about him? Are you a college football watcher? When do you yes. remember first hearing his name? Well, in, in 2016, I coached at the University of Cincinnati before I went to the Rams. And so as I was in LA, I still followed UC to an extent. You know, I was a big fan of Luke Fickle. Um, still followed how the program was doing. And, and probably the first time um, that I heard the name Joe Burrow, was when he was considering going to UC or LSU. And so I think that's the first time I got on my radar that UC might add this quarterback from Ohio State that, that uh, people had high regard for. Ultimately, he went to LSU. But if I had to, to pinpoint a moment where his, his name first came on the radar, I'd say that was it. Uh, whenever that was that he was making that decision, it was probably um, over the course of the summer, if I'm not mistaken, before he went to LSU. But um, I, I knew Jimmy Burrow. You know, he, he's somebody I, I, I knew – um, that he'd been in Nebraska for a long time, the history, um, the brothers, Jamie and Dan, I knew of them. I, I don't know them personally, but I knew of them because they played before me at Nebraska. Uh, but I would see Coach Burrow, you know, in the halls of some of the Cincinnati high schools in 2016. Recruiting for OU? Him. What's that? Recruiting yeah, when he was at for OU, When he was at OU and I was at Cincinnati, um, Coleraine High School specifically is probably the last time I remember seeing him face-to-face. -face. Uh, but at the time, I had no idea that – he had a son, another son, that was that was uh, that our lives were about to intersect years down the road. You know what's ironic, really, when you think about this? Okay, so you obviously have Nebraska heritage, and Joe Burrow had Nebraska pursued him uh, hard after his experience at Ohio State. He probably would have gone there, and it's 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 just amazing that. You know, he ended up going somewhere else, but kind of wanted to go to Nebraska. Sure. Uh, it would be fascinating to see how that would have played out, you know. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, that, that's one thing I, I try to stay away from is, is the circumstances that led him away from there. Yeah. Um, Zach, if you can just talk about, you know, I, I always wonder this about NFL coaches, particularly you probably knew midway through last season that there's a good chance you're going to have a high pick in this draft. So I wonder if you're on the road on the Saturday before a game, or if you're even at home on the Saturday before a game, do you find yourself watching college football? Did you watch any Joe Burrow at all last fall? I, I usually I do not. When I'm on the road, um, it's Saturday night. You're usually either, either going through the game plan with the quarterbacks at the last minute or preparing for the team meeting. And then when that's over, I go to bed, you know. So, so, so before I was a head coach, yeah, I used to go on Saturdays. I'd watch those games. And um, this season, I didn't watch many of them. However, LSU played, you know, in the playoffs. They played the conference championship game. They played in the playoffs. Um, and so those were games I, I caught because, if I'm not mistaken, the national championship game was on a, a Monday night, you know. Right. And I can't remember the playoff games, what night they were on. But, but those were games I did catch. And it's hard to avoid 
um, all the talent that was on the field, but the way he played in those games, certainly he stepped up on those big stages. So those are probably the only two times I watched him live. I, uh, I found myself, and I'm not a big college football watcher at all. I only, I've only seen him play twice in my life on television. But the one thing that impressed me, and I said this to him yesterday, I said, you know, in that game against Alabama, you walked last fall. That is the biggest game of your life. And you walk onto the field, second-ranked team against the third-ranked team. Your first three throws are in the air, 22, 35, and like 23 yards in the air against Alabama. And that is what I think really impresses me about Joe Burrow. A coach doesn't have to call a game for Joe Burrow. Hey, let's get his confidence up. Mm -hmm. Let's get him some easy completions. Let's have him throw maybe a couple of short wheel routes or something like that. And I wonder, as a coach, did you ever notice that? You know, that, that's funny that you mentioned that. Um, I think sometimes just, just – I know when I was a player, I wasn't good enough to play in the NFL, but it's always resonated with me. I didn't like throwing a, a quick throw. That didn't get me into a rhythm. I need to, to really let my arm go a little bit. And so um, it's fascinating for you to pick up on that. You know, some, some quarterbacks need, need one of those throws where complete or incomplete, they're pushing the ball down the field, and um, they feel like they're really using their, 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 uh, their upper body a little bit and, and just kind of getting into the throw early instead of just guiding those little flare routes in the backfield and some of that kind of stuff. So everybody's different. Maybe, maybe that was different for me, but I feel like Joe's probably the same way. You know, he wants to actually make a difficult throw early in that game instead of just guiding the ball and trying to start three for three. Yeah. What mentally about Joe Burrow attracted you to him? He's got an, I've said this, he's got an earned confidence. You know, it's not, it's not cockiness. It's not swag. It's none of those things. It's, it's a guy who clearly um, puts in the work. He knows how to approach the work. And so that when he walks on the field on a Saturday afternoon in college, um, he feels like he's the most prepared player on the field and he's got the answers to the test. And it's just a matter of, of making sure that everybody's playing at the same standard he is on this team. And he's done that. He's, he's gotten those guys to that level. And so um, when you say you got to have complete command of the system the way that he did and consistently performs at the level that he did, it shows that he's consistent with his approach. There wasn't ever a down game for him. Right. You know, probably, probably his worst interception of the year was week two against Southeastern Louisiana, whoever it was at play, he threw like a sail route on the right sidelines. And um, that was probably his worst interception of the year. You know, it was a week two against – probably the, uh, the, the easiest opponent they were going to play, but um, just, just. Why did it happen? Um, probably second or third quarter. Uh, they were on maybe the minus 15, 20 yard line on the right side. Um, I think it was week two or week three early on. Um, Southeastern Louisiana, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But, but anyway, you, you could just tell as, as the season went on and the opponents got bigger, he was putting in the work, he was prepared. He had that confidence that um, wasn't fake. Um, you know, some guys feel like they got to walk out there and act like they've got that edge to them, but they haven't put in the work. They're hoping that their performance matches um, kind of the identity that they're trying to personify. He's not that way. He's comfortable in his own skin. He walks out there and he, and he acts that way because he's confident. Um, he is not over the top. He just knows that I put in the work. Now it's just the time to, to show the world what I've done. Don't you feel with players sometimes that it's helpful when they've gotten the crap beat out of them for a few years? You know, he doesn't go to the Elite 11. He's not, even though he's Mr. Football in Ohio, you know, it's a smaller school, so nobody really believes in him. And he loses the job at Ohio State, and he gets hurt, and he has to leave kind of tail between his legs and, and all that. And, and it's almost like those kind of people, it's like Tom Brady. He always brings up, always that he was the 199th pick in the draft. Mm -hmm. And and look, Joe won't be able to bring that up, but he can bring up a lot of the real negative stuff that's happened to him. And to me, that makes guys almost, uh, it, it almost makes them uh, appreciate the moment more and say, I'm never gonna let this go. He's had to, he's had to work for every, opportunity he was going to get every day of his life you know and he never was probably the most talented guy the biggest the fastest 
where sometimes those guys can take some days off and still walk out and, and be the best player on the field. Um, I would imagine, I haven't studied him since he was in middle school or high school. I know, I know he played in the state championship game his senior year, but um, I would imagine, you know, he had to show up every single day and work harder than everybody else or else no one would ever know his name. And um, can't speak for him, but that probably puts a pretty big chip on your shoulder. And, and uh, you know, it's how he got to where he is today. Uh, Zach, can you give me a moment in the pre-draft process, you know, it, from January until now, where maybe you're on a video conference, maybe you're having a conversation on the phone, whatever, but what, what stuck out to you early on at, or a moment that you had with Joe where you really said, man, this guy is our guy? I would say um, just two, maybe not that this guy's our guy, but two moments that, that I remember is the first phone call I made to him um, right before the combine, you know, so we, we hadn't met, you know, we were married in the news, certainly, you know, that this was the direction we were headed. But, but we certainly <laughs> That's a good way to put decision. it. We were married in the news. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, there's a moment there, right? at some point we're going to, we're going to talk and meet and how's that, you know, what's it going to sound like? What's it going to feel like? very natural. He was in California. Um, I, I shot him a text that, that I was going to be reaching out. Um, you know, actually the agent called me because he'd gotten a lot of texts from some supposed Zach Taylors and wasn't ever sure if he should respond or not. Um, so again, I was just touching base to see where he was training, how things were going. Um, kind of just have that initial first conversation. And it was a very easy conversation. It was very natural um, on his end, you know. And so it was just like, it kind of felt like two people that know each other for a long time, but they didn't. And it was just, it was a very natural conversation. And then the first time we, we met face to face, um, the whole world made a lot of it going into the combine. You know, we're going to get a chance to do our first 18 minute interview with him. And, and again, just very natural. He comes in the room, he's very comfortable, um, but, but at the same time, very professional and appreciative. And, you know, was confident enough to, to answer the questions, um, you know, with, with confidence and, and, uh, you know, there was, it was just, it was, it was an easy moment, I think, for both sides. And we, we all felt comfortable coming out of that. We still had more work to do, but certainly feel like, all right, if this is the pick that we end up making, we feel good about it. Was there another moment? You said there were two. Well, the, the first conversation when he was oh, in the first conversation. on the phone, okay. and, then, and then the second yeah. one would be the face-to-face -face at the combine. Yeah. Um, how much did you get to in these weird video conferences and not meeting face to face, not being able to put them up on the board. How much did you actually get to talk football, to talk about your offense? Enough. You know, it's the process that we, we, we got to use the three hours a week that were allotted to us. You know, we got three one hour meetings a week, um, started doing that in March. And, and over that time through Zoom, you can, you can watch film just, just as we do with a lot of the players that we were interviewing. Um, during that evaluation phase, you can show them tape of their film um, yeah. and, and ask them to talk through, okay, what's your thought process? How would you teach this concept? And then consequently, you know, then you can flip over, right? Here's what we did. Here's a very similar concept. Here's how we teach it. Um, if you were in your five or six man protection, Joe, how would you block this? And so at the same time, we got to talk their offense, talk our offense, um, again, all in the evaluation phase. And and um, so I'm sure over the time he, he got to learn a good amount of it because we kept using the same terminology over and over. And all right, this is what you call it. Here's what we would call it um, and answer ask questions of him and just just use that as an evaluation tool to see how quickly he picks it up. And, and that's common for any quarterback you interview in this phase. You either send them materials and then go down there for their pro day and see how quickly they were able to study and, and comprehend it here. We didn't have that luxury, so we had to do it all over Zoom. How many of those sessions would you estimate that you had with him? 10? Yeah, just over 10. We submitted them all the league. I, I would say between 10 and 12. Yeah. Um, and in your mind, I mean, that's, that's interesting to me because I wonder if you do spend 12 hours with your first round draft choice in a normal period of time. Maybe you do, but that seems like it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, usually you, you don't know who you're picking. And so yeah, yeah. Um, you're trying to take that time and divvy it up amongst a lot of the candidates. You know, if you're picking at five or seven, 
or 11 like we had last year, you don't know who to, you're trying to do homework on all of them. Um, right. Here, at some point you can, okay, we're, we're probably taking this guy. Um, let's spend all the time allowed to him and see how much he can handle. Two other things interest me about your situation right now. No one has ever had to prepare a new quarterback, a rookie quarterback, in a situation like you're about to face. You're not going to have any practices, maybe for a long time. Who knows whether the season starts on time? Who knows if you have training camp? Maybe he meets A.J. Green on Labor Day weekend. I mean, you just – there's so much now that is unknown. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that? Well, you, you know that you're taking the right guy and that he's going to put in the work on his own because um, we're going to have to find a way to manufacture a lot of the physical reps that, that we could potentially be missing out on all spring. And, and if you're taking a guy that you don't trust, has the work ethic and um, the consistency in his daily approach to do that on his own, then, then you're going to have problems. But, um, you know, we, we've seen this coming for a couple weeks now that what this offseason may look like and uh, feel very comfortable that we can handle things virtually on our end to teach him what it should look like, show him on film what it should look like, and then have the trust factor that he's going to find a way to be creative and manufacture in his backyard, in a, in a field next to his house, whatever it is, as best he can, uh, try to simulate calling a play, breaking the huddle, coaching everybody up, even though it's just a ghost out there, you know, uh, or, or mom and dad and girlfriend and brother, <laughs> whoever it is, um, we're going to have to be creative there. And that's not just Joe, that's, that's uh, T Higgins. That, that's all yeah. these guys is, is yeah. we're going to have to really challenge them to, hey, in your own way, on your own time, be creative with how you're going to approach this. Did this have anything to do with why you have not either moved or released Andy Dalton? Yeah, I think um, we appreciate everything Andy's done here. And we just needed to make sure, um, particularly you get through the draft with all your options on the table. And we feel like that's the best move for the organization right now is we got a veteran quarterback that can win a lot of football games. Um, let's make sure that, that we have all the cards in the deck before we make a decision. And, um, I'm sure we'll have some conversations this week about which direction that's headed. Last thing I wanted to ask you. So you must be confident in everything that Joe can do in his own personal confidence. You've seen him throw the ball so accurately downfield. But I wonder, are there a couple of maybe system-specific things that you think are going to be the most challenging or you know, difficult for a young quarterback to learn and, and maybe, you know, add in the difficulty of this off season to that. How do you approach those things? I don't think schematically there's going to be anything that's, um, that's overly concerning with, with him. Uh, it's just the, it's the physical reps of, of playing against the speed in the NFL and, and the different defenses you'll face and the disguises that those guys can utilize and, and uh, as smart as you are, sometimes you just need those physical reps. You need to train your eyes to see him at this level. He played in the SEC. You saw how many picks went in the first round from the SEC. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an unbelievable conference. And it's going to get you as prepared as it can. Um, but nothing, nothing can replicate what an actual NFL defense looks and feels like on game day, particularly in our division. You know? And so, so it's, it, uh, you just want those physical reps as much as you can get them. We'll take every practice they'll give to us when that time comes. We'll utilize all of them. Um, and, and do our best to get up to speed and make sure we, we account for all those physical reps that we may be missing right now. So it doesn't sound like you're that concerned that he's going to know your offense whenever it is that it comes time to play the games. Correct. No concern there. Uh, listen, I really wish you luck. He's, uh, he seems like a great guy for this league. He's a great guy for your franchise, I think. And and you have to be, you know, look, you can't be thanking your lucky stars you went 2-14. and 14. No. But there's <laughs> one piece of good news, and that you get a guy who really looks like he might be the long-term answer. Yep. Hey, we're, we, we put ourselves in this position. We'll make the most of it. And I'm, I'm really happy how this offseason has turned out for us. Zach Taylor, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks a lot, Peter. My thanks to John Lynch and Zach Taylor. Excellent conversations with both men. Boy, a lot going on in the NFL right now, even though you can't be together. I think John Lynch and Zach Taylor gave you a good view into their worlds right now and what it's going to be like going forward. 
It's been really fun talking to you this week. It's been really fun preparing for this draft in a totally different way. And as I said in the last line of my column on Monday, so what do we do now? And you know, it's going to be the kind of unique year in the National Football League that I have a feeling that it's not going to be very difficult to find out what exactly we do now because everything in this weird year surrounded by everything being interrupted by uh, this killer virus, I think that everybody in the NFL, I think, realizes a couple of things. Number one, look, you know, our jobs don't amount to a hill of beans compared to what's going on in this country. So let's not, uh, uh, let's not overstate the importance of what we're doing. And number two, um, I think the NFL will, will fit in to what, uh, what is happening in America. And I, I think they're going to try to, uh, over the next month or so, they're gonna release the schedule most likely next week. Uh, and they're going to just play it by ear about what they do going forward in the future. You heard John Lynch talk about games with no fans. Nobody knows what the future holds. So stay tuned. I'll be back next week with another podcast. I have no idea what it'll be. And we are going to let the events of these crazy times dictate that. Thanks a lot for listening this week. <laughs>